Welcome to the Equipping You podcast, where our mission is to equip Alliance pastors and leaders to live spiritually healthy lives and lead healthy churches. Equipping You is a ministry of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org. Hey, 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 welcome back to Equipping You podcast. This is season seven episode four, and we're coming to you today from Columbus, Ohio, actually up near Dublin, Ohio, home of the Muirfield Village Golf Course, Okay, designed by Jack Nicklaus, home of a PGA tournament every year called the Memorial, and it reminds me that golf for me is like a day at the beach. I spend a lot of time in the sand and the water. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I am shocked that I did not see that coming. But I've heard you talk about your golf game, and it seems to me like you're speaking truth. I am absolutely speaking truth. I'm Terry, Church Ministries Leader for the Alliance. And I'm Alan, uh, working in Eastern PA with our district team there. And I am Caitlin, equipping you producer. Thank you, Alan and Caitlin. Isaac. Charles is also in the background, the silent listener to every conversation. <laughs> and, uh, he does Isaac. a great job. Love having Isaac on our uh, team. So uh, our guest today, Alan, is Jeff Schulte, mm. and uh, he brought along with him Todd Wormers. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about uh, Jeff and how you came to know about him. Well, I... We just had Jeff Vanderstel speak at our district conference, and uh, he mentioned some uh, challenges that he was facing in ministry and how the ministry that Jeff founded, Tin Man Ministries, uh, was so helpful to him during a difficult time in his life. And I thought, what Jeff Vanderstel described to our, our team was not something that's unusual for pastors, the feeling of just like isolation and when you're going through a tough time, and who in the world do you tell when you're in ministry? And uh, so he spoke favorably of Jeff and the ministry. And so I, I tracked it down myself, little, read a lot about him, listened to some interviews with him. And I thought our pastors need to be able to explore some of this because sometimes they feel alone, especially in this, who knows what COVID world it is. It's not post COVID yet, yeah. uh, at least not at the time of this recording. Uh, and it's been a challenge, you know, and I don't want our pastors, our workers, our international workers. I don't want them to feel alone. Yeah, I want them to know that God wants them to be in deep connection with others, uh, and that really the feelings and the what we have are meant to draw us to God, not push us away from God. Uh, so I just thought we got to get this guy on, and you kindly agreed with me, uh, and I appreciate that. And so though we have here we have Jeff and Todd today, and uh, so listen to this podcast in light of what Alan has just shared, which is vitally important. So grab yourself a Metagold chocolate milk. You have to go to Colorado probably to do that. I don't think there's Metagold in the East. My dad used to never work heard of it for Metagold hmm. dairy. Wow. All right, then. Sit back. Relax. Here we go. And it's our pleasure to welcome to Equipping You podcast today, Jeff Schulte. And uh, Todd Wormers, welcome, guys. Good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here, fellas. So uh, we like to get to know those who are our guests. So if you want to give us, to start with, just a snapshot of your journey of coming to know Christ, 
we'd love to hear uh, that. Okay, I, I'll I'll do it briefly. Although I could do the whole podcast on that. <laughs> we know because I, I love the story, you know. Um, but I was um, I was raised in a I was the fifth of six kids in a Midwestern family. It was Gene, Jack, Jim, Joanne, Jeff, and Judy. Wow. We had, we had a dog named Joker. <laughs> and and uh, her name could have been Joker. <laughs> it could have been easily. Yeah, if I'd have been a girl, I think my mom said I'd have been a Jill. So we were keeping those J's. But um, but you know. We were a religious family that went to church. Uh, I went to uh, religious schools up until high school, public school and high school, but all the way up through eighth grade. I was in church a lot in the particular uh, setting that we were in uh, religious, I say religiously, and I'm distinguishing that from spiritually, um, but really um, very surrounded by vernacular related. You know, I knew who God was. I wasn't unfamiliar with Jesus Christ or any of that, but um, I didn't understand the grace of God. Uh, I just, I thought that if I, I thought that my job was to keep my, I, I had a, a whiteboard on my back and when I would screw up, it would get a mark on it. And then when I would ask for forgiveness, it'd get erased. And I just knew I needed to die uh, on the, on the erased side of that kind of confession. But as I lived my life, you know, I was just continuing to build up black marks all over my back. I just... I didn't understand that the, that, that the possibility, which the gospel teaches, that the, that the actual whiteboard is taken away, that I'm absolutely just loved. And I was introduced to that fall. I was a freshman at Yale University, uh, just barely on the campus a month. Um, this was in the early 80s. And, um, and a guy sat down with me in my residential college dorm room, room 1607, Timothy Dwight College. And he asked me a couple of penetrating questions. One was, he said, if Jesus died on the cross, um, what percent chance do you think you'd have of going to heaven? And I, based on what I just shared with you, I said, you know, probably I'm at least a B minus or a C plus. If God grades on a curve, you know, there's better that people than me, but there's also a lot of worse people. And then he said, um, so if you stood before God, and he said, why, why shall I let you come into heaven? What would you tell him? And I said, well, I'll tell you what I just said, that I think I've lived a pretty good life. And he goes, well, um, uh, why did Jesus die on the cross then? And I said, so I could go to heaven. And he said, well, which is it? He said, are you going to heaven because you lived a certain way? Or are you going to heaven because Jesus Christ died on the cross for you because you couldn't? And I realized as an 18-year-old who thought I was pretty smart at an Ivy League school, realized that I had been living with this complete contradiction inside my heart, inside my mind, that although I knew who Jesus was relative to how I went to heaven, I was still working really hard to be good enough to get to heaven. And I, at that moment, just said that, that I, I got to fix this contradiction. And I, if I'm real honest, I need a savior. I don't need uh, more gasping on how to work harder to be better. Yeah. And right there in that dorm room, I prayed and asked Christ to forgive me. And um, I was in, I was literally born again and uh, began to change. It was dramatic and life changing and life altering for me. That's great. How about you, Todd? Yeah, I came to know Christ at 18. I grew up in a broken home. Um, and at 15, I was abandoned in an airport to go live with my biological father who had only met uh, one other time, two other times up until this point. And uh, at that moment on the plane, I said out loud to my older brother, I'll never feel this way again. And I did everything I could uh, to, to run and avoid uh, the pain of my life. And what I began to realize is when I was a senior, I could run as fast as I could, but I couldn't outrun 
the hand of God. And so uh, I played basketball, baseball, and water polo. And uh, a teammate of mine, his dad was a pastor, got transferred from Nashville, Tennessee to Houston, Texas. And uh, my junior year, he just began to, to witness to me and uh, would invite me to church. And I just would have nothing to do with church until my senior year. He uh, coaxed me into going to a, uh, a lock-in, which I think those need to be outlawed now. But I came <laughs> to know Christ at a lock-in and uh, just had a really dramatic shift uh, in my life. Um, and so at 18, uh, I knew I needed to leave Texas. Um, and I just my relationships, my friendships were not going to spur me to become a, a devoted follower of Christ. And that's uh, right around the same time as where God called me into ministry. So 18, my buddy, uh, about two o'clock in the morning at a lock-in led me to, to Christ. And then uh, for the next two and a half months from uh, that was the spring of my senior year of high school. Uh, he discipled me every morning in the lunchroom uh, to follow Christ. And uh, thanks to his name's Court. Thanks to Court. Uh, I'm a Christ follower today. So. There's a lot more to that story, but that's the gist of it. I was as far away from God, trying to outrun God, but God's you can now never outrun the the, the loving arm of the Lord. So that is fantastic well, stuff. You know, yeah. we didn't have you on for the purpose uh, for the purpose of that, but to hear that those people were ambassadors of Jesus to you mm-hmm. that that is just beautiful. Yeah, wow. So, in addition to those people who had a major influence in your life, who who has influenced you as a leader along the way? Um, you know, I've got several, um, my story's a little different than Todd's, but what's not, what's, what's the same is I was also, uh, raised in a fatherless home. <laughs> and so, um, you know, for me as a young Christ father, I found myself gravitating toward men who I saw in their lives, things that I wanted to be true in mind. And, and some of that was really redemptive and really helpful in some ways though. And some of the guys I kind of latched onto, it actually fed my uh, per, uh, what I call performance-based identity, that even though I come to know Christ and knew that I'd have to perform anymore, I still was hard for me to get rid of that thing that told me that I was loved because I was good enough. I was loved because I was smart enough. I was loved because I was good enough in sports. I was loved because for something that I was always having to work to be okay, that even though in my head, I understood the gospel and I placed my trust in Christ, there's still something in me, even, even, even in the context of my faith. And then eventually in ministry that I was only okay if I was performing. And so probably the leader that has had the, the, the single greatest impact on me in that way to help me kind of unwind that performance-based identity is a, a man named Al Henson. Uh, he directs a ministry called the Compassionate Hope Foundation, which works with um, Christian leaders up and down the Mekong River and on the Laos side and on the Thailand side. And I, I just hadn't, I've never, I've never had a, I, I call him my spiritual father because I've never had a man uh, that I trusted enough, just loved me mm. in spite of. Mm. And by the way, part of how I met him was at a low point in my life when I had least to offer anybody. And yet this man held me in his arms. I cried with him. He's walked with me. Um, uh, he, he just, you know, he has been what I would call, and Todd would probably use the same language. We do this all the time with guys. He became a corrective experience for me. You know, the old statement, uh, if you really knew me, you would what? Leave me, which is why no one can ever know me. Mm. And they'll know enough about me that I'm winsome, but they won't know enough about me that they might reject me. Mm -hmm. And rejection is our greatest fear. 
uh, because it's about uh, uh, life and death. And this is a man who probably more than any has not rejected me, uh, even knowing things about me that I find rejectable. Uh, and so the experience of being in a relationship with him has just, it hadn't, it hadn't taught me a lot of information. It's helped me to have an experience with a human being that has helped me to touch a bigger experience with a God that may love me the way that this man shows me love. Wow. That's fantastic. Good. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's Jeff Schulte, who, you know, I get to sit and work with every day. And again, I think what he said, he, like for me, I was a young guy coming out of Bible college and there were some things said to me and over me uh, that God would use me in some pretty profound ways. And, uh, and he did, but in that there was also um, an addiction and we may get into that or not, but uh, through that God's hand was on me and um, just had a, these older men in my life that wanted to be with me, but didn't want to be with me for me. They wanted to be with me for my gifts and abilities for really for them uh, and, and use me in some pretty, harmful ways uh, for their kingdom, not the kingdom. Out of that, I just had to find a place of relief from that. And that for me was uh, a pornography addiction um, that started when I was, you know, 12, 13 years old and carried with me into my adulthood until I was 30. When I was 31, I went to a rehab uh, treatment center actually here in Nashville. I was a pastor down in Fort Myers, Florida. I was a college pastor, teaching pastor at a, a pretty significant sized church. One one uh, church, three locations is, was the tagline. Uh, but I met Jeff when I was at the very tail end of my uh, treatment and rehab for 90 days. And I just began a relationship with Jeff where Jeff, he said it, it was a corrective experience. A, a man that was further down the road in their walk with the Lord, further down the road and where God had you know, redeemed them and used them in some powerful ways and significant ways in the life of the church. And for the first time in my life, I met a guy that wanted me for me, not me for what I could offer. And so uh, I've known Jeff for 13 years and now actually almost to the day we met uh, November. Uh, I can almost remember the day November. I believe it was November the 3rd. Uh, it was my last week, my last full week in treatment. Uh, he was the first pastor to go through the program. I was the second pastor to complete the program. And we've been friends ever since. And he's been a corrective experience of wanting to a place where I can matter and I can belong and to be seen and be heard. Uh, and it's more about me than it is about what he can get out of me. So Jeff has been that huge corrective experience. I, I tell people all the time, I don't work uh, for 10 men because I love 10 men. I work for 10 men because Jeff Schulte leads it and believes in me. And if Jeff left Tim and tomorrow, I'd leave with him uh, to go anywhere. Um, so that that's just the kind of man he is, has been to me. And I just love him. Right. So to put that in a biblical context, it's very humbling to hear those words from Todd. From Todd but here, here's a biblical context for this. It says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it's talking about do not be conformed to this world. It says, I therefore urge you, therefore, brethren, to offer your bodies as a holy living sacrifice to God. Then it says, and do not be conformed, that's an outside in, but be transformed, that's an inside out, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, when we hear that uh, as Westerners, we hear that, we think, oh, I need, to, I, need to I need to renew my mind. That means I need to renew what I think. And we immediately go up into our head and go, that's cognitive, it's cognition. I, if I can change the way I think, it'll change the way I live. I'll be transformed if I can change the way I think. The problem is there's no gospel in that statement because knowledge and information doesn't change us. 
Relationships change us. Jesus Christ was the truth, but he wasn't just a truth. He was the truth. The truth is a person whose love changes us. Okay. And even into, into the Hebrew, I know he's writing to the Romans, but, 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 but for that context, the word no there, it's not just talking about a cognition. You know, for them, even for a Hebrew to know anything meant you knew it. Like it was more holistic than that. Like you knew it, in, you knew it, you knew it on the inside. Like a minute ago when I said, I, I knew the gospel, but like on the inside, I still didn't know I could just be loved. Okay. The renewing of your mind means I have a holistic experience of renewing that actually does change me. And what I want to say is that's a relational renewing. It's a relational renewing. We all come from somewhere that shapes us. Every child comes into the world answering a couple of basic questions. Who am I? Where am I? And how am I going to survive here? And they're pulling all this data from their family of origin into their little bitty heart and mind. And they're making sense of it and coming to conclusions. Okay. Todd shared his airport story for me. You know, my dad left us when I was three years old, divorced my mom, married a woman he'd been having an affair with. Two years later, divorced her, came back, remarried my mom again when I was five, stayed for nine months, and then divorced my mom again and went back and remarried the woman he'd been married to the first time. Wow. So my dad was married four times over a couple, between my age of three and five, my mom and another woman twice. And I can tell you what, what that planted in me was several things. One was, if you really love me, do you really love me and when are you going to leave me? Mm-hmm. That was it. Do you really love me and when are you going to leave me? Because it's only a matter of time that you will which that's where that performance train starts. Like I got to make sure people aren't going to leave me because for a child to be left is a matter, I got to say before it's a matter of life and death. So when we were talking about these corrective experiences, we're talking about relational experiences that, that even Jesus said this, we're born into a physical family that's imperfect. Okay. Hebrew says that, you know, our fathers did as best they thought they could do with what they had, but we have a perfect father that's going to love us forever. Like a real father. But, but even Jesus said, he said, who, who's your family? He says, who's your father, mother, sister, brothers? He's pointing, he's trying to teach disciples that when you come to know Christ, you do have a family of origin, but now you have a new family that you've been adopted into. Paul talks a ton about this. You've been adopted in this new family with this new identity, with this new name, with this new way to live. And you'll spend the rest of your life learning how to live as a member of this new family that you're actually loved in, okay, that you've been adopted into, and you're going to be reacting to that based on where you came from. I mean, we were born into the Adamic family and then we get adopted into the second Adam, which is Christ. And now we have to learn how to live and relationships are what change us. Mm. That's what we're talking about, which is going to get to eventually a little bit about what we do, why we do what we do the way we do it. Yeah. But it's why I think it's why I think Western Western church misses this sometimes is we line people up in rows and think we can educate them into maturity. And we're not made that way. We are not, a, a cognitive uh, neocortex is sitting on a stick that, that somehow if I change what I think, it's going to, there's a lot of things I know, but it doesn't mean I always live it the way I know. I got to have something that changes me and that's going to be love. And that's going to come in a relationship. That's great. Yeah. Well, and that's a bridge, you know, Todd mentioned uh, in his, one of his answers uh, about Tin Man. So uh, why don't you just give us the background real quick. Uh, what's the story behind Tin Man and its name? All right, so I'll be quick on this because I love telling the longer version, but there's actually a book. You know, the, the movie, The Wizard of Oz, was based on a book. The book's not very well read or it's not very well written, which is why no one's ever read the book. Uh, the movie's great. It's mm-hmm. classic. But in the book, okay, it tells the background 
of the Tin Man. Like, how did the Tin Man get frozen on that knoll when uh, the Scarecrow and Dorothy came upon him and he's standing there and he's saying, oil me, oil me. You know, it's like, like I'm stuck. Well, in the book, what happens is this Tin Man is a passionate lover and he falls in love with a munchkin girl and he's passionate about the life that he wants to have with her. And he's not a Tin Man yet. He's just a woodsman. So this woodsman goes out into the woods and he's going to clear land to build a life and a home for him and this girl he's in love with. The problem is this, this girl he's in love with, the mom doesn't like the woodsman and doesn't want her to marry him. And so she goes to one of the wicked witches and asks for help. And the wicked witch curses the acts of the woodsman. And so when the woodsman's out there trying to clear this land for this life he wants to have that he's passionate about with this woman that he's passionate for, uh, he cuts off his arm with the, with the cursed axe and goes to the tinsmith. The tinsmith gives him a metal arm. And I'll fast forward the story. The axe keeps cutting off body parts until he's a solid metal machine. And he is now in the woods cutting wood, totally devoid for what put him there in the first place. He just he's a he's a working, getting the job done machine. And he totally forgets why he's out there, loses his heart, and his passion, stops taking care of himself. It rains on him and he gets stuck. <laughs> That's how he's stuck. Now, in the story, here's what we find out. It's true. Of the Tin Man, it was true of the Scarecrow, and it's true of the, the Lion. The Tin Man had a heart the whole time. He just got disconnected from it. And on the way to see the wizard, he reconnected with the heart that had been in there the whole time. Mm. The Scarecrow was smart, but he forgot how smart he was. And the Tin Man was courageous, which is why when they finally got to the, to the wizard, the wizard didn't give them any of those things. He gave a, he gave a badge to the, to the lion saying, you're courageous, a medal. He, ga- he gave a diploma to the Scarecrow, which said, you're smart. And he gave a, a ticking clock shaped like a heart on the chest of the Tin Man just to remind him that he had a heart inside that chest and he'd had one the whole time. He'd just gotten disconnected from it. Hmm. Our premise is this. And this happens to leaders across the board, especially those in ministry, but across the board. that we get into this thing because we're passionate. We're lovers. We want to love God. We want to love others. We love our families. And, and we get into the work of ministry or even the work of work. And it's real easy in the performance of it. If these things are still driving us on the inside that we haven't dealt with, then we find ourselves out in that woods, clearing land, cutting down trees. And we don't know how we got there. And we've lost the, our heart in it. Now, we can call that burnout. We can call it depression. There's all kind of it, we guys get into addiction out there. All kind of things happen out in the woods. But the journey looks very familiar. And so we, we work with men and women all over the country, really around the world. We tell them all, we say, look, you're special, but not unique. Uh, the kind of cisterns that we build that don't hold water are not unique. Yeah. Find ways to survive. And, and a lot of them look pretty similar. And that's we right. deal with that all the time with guys. But that, that's where the story, the story is just iconic. But yeah. we just believe men and women, are, the wiring literally, this is a physiological psych, um, um, uh, uh, reality, I'm saying, the wires really do get disconnected between the head and the chest. Hmm. Uh, although, you know, there's nothing really in our chest, but a beating heart. Our, the, the real feeling brain is in uh, is, is up there near our thinking brain. But the literally the wiring does disconnect. And we just watch the wire reconnect with people through these corrective relational experiences. That's great. That is so encouraging. I, um, you know, as I was been following a little bit what you've written, what you've uh, talked about in some other interviews, I remember, you know, it's been been clear that the whole point of this is to to connect our emotions uh, to the fact in our heart to the deeper connections uh, that we long for and for even our discipleship with Jesus. 
can you kind of unpack that a little bit more for us? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things we would say about feelings, a lot of people come to us, what our job is to really help them get back to their hearts. Their hearts for us are feelings. Um, all of us have them. We come into the world with them. We'll leave the world with them. And so what we think in the way we operate is this feelings are, are three things. Uh, three, th- those three things are this, they are passwords. So if you think of a, if a phone, if I give you my phone, I have my password, but I got to give you the password to my phone for you to get into them. So I have feelings. They're my feelings. They're unique to me. They're unique to what's going on around me, but I've got to give those feelings or those passwords to other people to let people know where I'm at. It goes back to really what, um, God asked man in the garden when they, came upon feelings. Where are you? That was not a GPS question. That was an emotional question. God is asking for the password to where they're at for to be in relationship with them. Here's what we know to be true in this world. We come into a fallen, broken world. And because we we're in a fallen, broken world, we live in fallen, broken relationships. And so wounding happens in relationships. Therefore, we need healing and healing can only come through relationships. Well, feelings are that avenue to have healing is uh, we have feelings to put us back into relationship with God, ourselves, and other people. So the first place we do that is with the feelings through passwords. The next is that feelings are lanterns. Once I'm into my heart, I take the feelings of my heart as lanterns and begin to shine into some of those dark, dark places. The same that way that was true for me in that airplane, I said, I'll never feel this way again. Uh, I'll make sure that I'm not ever going to get back to this feeling of abandonment, uh, hurt, um, rejection. And so I had closed that off. But in my work, getting back to my heart with the passwords of just being honest with myself, becoming honest with other people, I had some lanterns that began to take me into some really dark places that had remained hidden. And then beyond that, so their passwords, their lanterns, and the last is their keys. They open our hearts up to some places that we've locked away for a long time. That could be sexual abuse. That was true in my story, that uh, other places of abandonment. So that's how we see it here through the lens of emotion. So they're, again, they're passwords, uh, lanterns, and keys that unearth us to be back in relationships with God, ourselves, and one another. Hmm. Oh, I love so that. Yeah. And what we're avoiding, you know, feel, feelings get up. Uh, we avoid feelings because feelings are the doorways to vulnerability. And we don't want to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. We, we've learned to protect ourselves to survive. Okay. And so um, we we deny what we feel. We pour concrete on what we feel. We all have got it. We've all got an amygdala in our limbic brain that's feeling stuff all the time. So that's a human that's a human reality, not a male reality, not a female reality, not a sinful reality, not a non sinful reality. That we have feelings all the time about what we feel. There's a great book called um, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, and he says in there he's talking about the, our brain, where our brain's designed. He says he says it's like there's a there's a little man riding on an elephant. And the little man's deluded or he's, he's under the illusion that he's guiding the elephant when the truth is that little man is being taken for a ride. And the elephant is the limbic brain where we have feelings. And the little man on the elephant is the rational brain, which is where we make sense of what we feel. And the way that we're created by God is we have feeling. All of our senses are first understood by the part of our brain where we feel things. And then we try to make sense. The little man sitting on the elephant tries to make sense about what I'm feeling. If I don't pay attention to what I'm feeling, and if I can't connect to you around what I'm feeling, I can't be in relationship with you because I won't, I can't be vulnerable and needy because 
those keys and those landers, it all takes me to a place of vulnerability. If I'm hurt, I need healing and attention. If I'm sad, I need comfort. I need someone to grieve and mourn with me. You know, the, uh, the, whole, the whole Beatitudes are, are articulated in the gifts of having feelings about your life. And yet somehow, even in the church, because we, I go back to this cognitive approach to life change, we've, we've literally demonized, and I don't mean that in a, you know, in a literal sense, but we have demonized the part that God made about us that allows us to connect into the lean relationships, which is our feelings. And then we've used the Bible out of context to justify it. You know, we take verses like Jeremiah 17 and say, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can trust it? We stop right there and say, oh, no one can trust the heart. Well, but we don't keep reading. But right after this says, who can trust it? It says, God pursue. Uh, read it, Todd. You have it right there. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. He says, I search the heart. In fact, that word for heart, it's actually the word kidneys in the Hebrew. It means the deepest part of you. Like there's a part of you that God is searching and he wants you to know, and he wants him to know with you. And you can confess those things, talk about those things. God, I'm afraid. I'm just so afraid. Now, by the way, I'm going to use fear as an example. Um, man, if, if, if I'm afraid, I must not be walking by faith because we say in the church oftentimes fear is the absence of faith. And we take all kinds of verses to prove that. Okay. Um, uh, John, John 4, uh, perfect love, or 1 John 4. Perfect love casts out fear. So that means if I'm knowing the perfect love of God, I won't be afraid. Well, the context of 1 John 4 has to do with eternal security and whether or not we know we belong to Christ and we have a father we can trust to welcome us into his arms someday. And that's what John's talking about. And actually, I won't quote it, but he basically says, you know your mind if the love of God is in you. If the love of God is in you, it's in you because you know me and I and God said, and, and God is love. So if you're loving and you have love in you, that means and this is what John writes. And then he says, and as it relates to your eternal future, perfect love casts out all fear of what that will be. The more that you rest in God's love for you, the less afraid you'll be about what's going to happen to you when you die. That's first John four. We take, we take passages like Philippians. We say, be anxious for nothing. Okay. And we say, well, don't be afraid. And well, that word anxiety, there's not fear. Anxiety is what happens to me when I try to prepare for what I'm afraid of so that when it happens, I'm ready for it. So what really Paul's saying there in Philippians is quit trying to take control of what you cannot control and prepare yourself for what you cannot be prepared for. But in all things, make your request known to God. What's the request? I'm afraid and I need you. I need refuge and protection and help. And he says, and as I entrust God with what I'm afraid of, so I don't have to be anxious, I can't control all this. He says, the peace of Christ guards your heart and your mind. Fear is not the absence of faith. Fear is the human recognition that I live in a dangerous place where bad things happen. And I need to reach by faith toward a God I can trust who will be with me. So low do I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil, not because the valley of the shadow of death is in a scary place, but because thou art with me. That rod and my staff, they comfort me. And I can tell you this, you go to you go to you pull out your concordance and go to most of the fear knots. And you're going to say most of the promises around the fear knots are fear not because I am with you. Fear not because I will leave you. Fear not because I will I will not abandon you. And it's most of the time God reminding us that we're not going to do the thing we're most. He's not going to do the thing we're most afraid of, which is leave us, leave us unprotected, uncared for. And we're not going to be OK. No. And so somehow to be afraid is like immature. And I go, no, actually, it's very mature. 
that I have the faith to call out to a God that'll take care of me when I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do in the church. And that's, that's, that's where I, I, that's just an example of a feeling that we've so misunderstood and then biblically made it more misunderstandable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, Jeff or Todd, what are some signs that ministry leaders are ignoring their hearts and their relationships and leadership? I think the first and primary one is isolation. They, they uh, have a thousand friends, but no friends at all. And no one really knows them. They're not in a place um, where they're actually answering that question. Where are you with other human beings and being vulnerable with the heart uh, through emotions, not through content. I think a lot of pastors can connect theologically brain to brain but few pastors, I'm a pastor, so I speak to this, um, that we really have safe places where I can bring what's going on in my heart to another human being. So I think that's probably the primary place. Okay. Thank you. That's great. I appreciate that. Um, I think pastors tend to have some occupational hazards that put them in that spot. uh, But the good news of Jesus kind of gives us hope for that deeper connection discipleship. So can you walk us through how you know the promises of Jesus really open us to to walk in that and not be afraid to walk in that and to have those that better discipleship because of it. Well, I think it's what Paul says right in um, Galatians six. We've got to we've got to have people in our lives that are willing to carry the burdens with us. Our burdens are what weigh us down. Our when we get weighed down, uh, we get discouraged. When we get discouraged, we want to give up. So we need relationships. It's all about for us here at Tim Man. It's all about relationships. Um, so we need those relationships uh, that we can go to, that we can depend on, that we're, again, the core question of the heart is always asking, do I matter and do I belong? And so do I have a place that I matter and do I have a place that I, I belong? I believe uh, one of my buddies, he says it this way, that doesn't happen in rows, that happens in circles. Um, and so do we have places that we're getting knee to knee and heart to heart with just being open and honest and not transparent? I think pastors do a great job of transparency, uh, but transparency are, are what, what we would say are bits. Uh, we, have, we live our life in bits. So I'll give you a, a bit of me, but not all of me. Vulnerability is you get all of me. And so you can speak into me. And so those are the relationships we want to help foster and create here at Tin Man or are not transparent groups, but vulnerable groups, which, which uh, uh, relates to a piece of this that you mentioned about um, uh, some of the, the occupational hazards of pastoral work. Uh, in a general sense, around, I'll just speak to men for a second. This is true men and women, but I know the research is around men. Research shows that if a man has at least one place where he can bring his inside outside, vulnerably the way Todd just described, every single area of his life changes. His relationship with his wife, if he's married, his friends, his children, if he's a dad, his ministry, his work, everything elevates when he has at least one place where he can be fully known by other men across the board, across the board problem is, and this is kind of true with doctors and it's true with pastors. Okay. And if you split open the brain of a physician and you split open the brain of a man or woman in ministry, you're going to see this, you're going to see the same pathology. And it's related to this. We're in the, we're in the, one of those professions that if we tell the truth about our inside and I'm not at all dismissing qualifications for leadership within the church or any of that, but we're one of those professions that if we tell the truth about our life, okay, we just may lose our life. You know, a doctor can't walk out of a, an operating room and go, man, that was scary. Or, um, 
you know, I feel some, I feel some shame. That was not my best job. Like I kind of, I kind of mailed that one in and I hope as a C plus, I hope the guy lives. Like he can't tell anybody, he's got to walk out and be confident. He's got to, he's got to have nailed it, you know, um, and pastors the same way. That's why we get bits is the, the bits help people know, Hey, I'm real quote unquote. But if I really told the truth about me, I may be shown the door. And that creates a compartmentalization internally where I, where, where I, ha- I end up literally the walls that are created inside me that I end up being one person over here and another person out there. And that's where you get, you know, I was a pastor of a church of over 4,000 people that, you know, started with four people in a community and exploded over seven years. And the reason I say this, because I knew all those people, because I was there from the beginning. I knew a lot of people and I would have said I had a thousand friends. But nobody knew a lot of things that were going on in me personally that I'd never told anybody that in the midst of all that growth as a church and me pastoring that church, I didn't know where to go. And I knew if I went to anybody and started talking about what was going on, I was 45 years old. I had six kids under the age of 15, 14. And I thought, man, I, I, I really, by the way, I think a lot of guys leave ministry because they can't tell the truth about what they're struggling with in ministry. And so the easiest way out is just to get out. And I remember kind of knowing I was struggling with some deep stuff that, that I just wasn't qualified to lead this church I had started. And I just remember knowing like, I either need to, and I, I'm, I don't mean to be dramatic, but I thought I, the only way out is to probably kill myself or just sort of slide out and go, Hey, I think I'm burnt out. I'm done. I need to look for something else to do with my life. And graciously, the Lord put me in a setting instead. Todd mentioned it where I, admitted myself into a setting that I was really going to be able to deal with the stuff going on in my life. And then I did start telling the truth and I was fired and also was getting my life back. Um, and I spent the last 15, 16 years trying to help other men and women get theirs. And that's what Todd does as well. So our passion for this comes out of our own experience. Um, but that is one of the huge occupational hazards. You know, you can, I don't mean this, but you can be a drunk lawyer and you can be, uh, you can be unfaithful. You can have five girlfriends and be married. But if you can win a case, you're not going to lose your job. And I'm not saying a pastor needs to have five girlfriends. What I'm saying is a pastor can't talk about lust. He can't talk about his eating. He can't talk about his drivenness, his workaholism, his perfectionism, his control, his rage. He can't talk about his loneliness with his wife. He can't talk about his lack of friend. He can't talk about any of that. He just has to stand up and be a demonstration to everybody of what the good Christian life can look like. And man, that's, that is a, that's just a death sentence spiritually and personally. Did you agree with that time? So true. Yeah. Very good. And we, we see that all the time, all the time. And that was our stories kind of, but. So sometimes people in ministry actually talk about emotions in a negative way. Yeah. Can you walk us through some examples of how our emotions can actually help us trust Jesus? Well, I think it's just paying attention to us. It's exactly what uh, God said to Adam and Eve in the garden. He's asking that question, that emotional question. So here's here's what what is true. What's true about us is our emotion. Now, that may not the content around our emotions may not be true, but what's happening in me is true. Now, out of that is, do I am I going to live in the fruit of the spirit? Am I going to live in the the spirit of my um, feelings? Again, like Jeff said. Like the vulnerability, of it. the vulnerability of it. So fear, the gift of fear would be wisdom. That's what, when my child is running to the front yard into the street, it's my fear that propels me to grab them. Or if I don't live in the spirit with the Lord, uh, with Christ being center of it, I'll live in the flesh and the flesh will be a place of anxiety. 
And so my anxiety, I'll just want to be in control of everything. And so it's what's, it's what's true. Our feelings are what's true about us. Now, our behavior around what's true about us is where things get sticky and hairy because it's like, what am I going to do? Am I going to live with the spirit, with the Lord? Am I surrender to him or am I going to live in wanting to be in control of myself? And so that's one of the ways. That's why I think feelings get a bad rap It's because, A, it's how we live out of the feelings, not how we live in the feelings. So here's an example of that. And I'll use hurt, for example. If I'm hurting, that's a very vulnerable feeling. I'm hurt. Okay. And if I'm hurt, that means the need is I need healing. And the gift of hurt, if I can tell the truth about my hurt, I have a possibility of experiencing some healing for that hurt, okay, emotional or physical. And then the need that's met in that is attention. Like someone's paying attention to my hurt. You know, if your hurt doesn't matter, you don't matter. That's why, that's why you pull your little kid up on, their, your, on your lap and you kiss a boo-boo. It doesn't change the hurt in that moment oftentimes, but you're paying attention to that child, telling them that their hurt matters, that they matter. Now, if I can't walk into the vulnerability of admitting that I'm hurt, that you had the power to hurt me or that someone else could had the power to hurt me, I will move toward resentment, which now I'm gaining control. Okay. And, I, and in my resentment, I'll justify my right to get revenge. And you can see where this goes. So the issue is revenge and resentment. That's where we're sinful. That's where we get into trouble. That's where relationships are damaged. The problem isn't hurt. The problem is what happens when I can't be vulnerable to be hurt. Sadness would be another quick example. If I, if I can be sad and tell the truth about my losses, I grieve unto life. I grieve unto life. If I can't, I'll move to self-pity and then demand. Demand that somebody make my life better or to fix what I lost. And so, so every one of those feelings has an impairment and then a result. If I can't walk into the vulnerability of them, and they all have, they're like doorways that walk me into vulnerability, I, I experience gifts. So I would say across the board, uh, you, you could see even in some of the, the, the work that we put out, we did a, um, an eight-week, Phil Hearn and I wrote an eight-week Bible study called the Voice of the Heart Bible Study. It's on Amazon. But we actually go through eight chapters and took it to take each one of those eight feelings and we talk about the impairments, the gifts. We use a biblical example. Uh, for example, for her, we use the example of David and how he dealt with his resentment. And then we talk about the hurt that's going on in your life right now. And everyone, we're leading people back. To, like Todd said, pay attention to what you're feeling. Tell the truth about it. Confess the vulnerability of it. Okay. To God and or some others, writing in a journal, doing the work. Okay. And that way, when we become like a child. Not in, a, not in a, a silly way, but in a beautiful way, the way Jesus meant it when he said, unless you become like a child, you're not going to experience this kingdom I have for you. A child is not ashamed of their neediness. A child is not ashamed to ask for help. A child will tell you what they feel and they'll tell it like demonstratively because they're, they're, they haven't yet learned how not to be themselves to survive. They're just bringing it all. And, uh, and I think there's the invitation for believers is to start to learn how to be in need again tell the truth about what they're feeling, connects us in relationships with God and others. And truthfully, then we start to grow. We were renewed in that growth. And it takes a lifetime, but I'm in it for the lifetime. So as we kind of wrap up here, I, this is there's so much to think about here. So much good stuff. I'm wondering if, you know, if some of our listeners, ministry leaders are feeling that isolation that you referenced as an occupational hazard. Uh, what, would, what would be some good first steps for them to take for dealing with that isolation so that they can move forward with God and others? Uh, the first place is uh, the Voice of the Heart Bible study that uh, Jeff just mentioned. It's a great way to uh, get 
a firm grasp on the eight feelings as well as a theological framework for them? Because a lot of people come to us and they're like feelings in the Bible. They don't go hand to hand. Uh, what Jeff and Phil Herndon did right in the Bible study, they put those married those two. Well, that's the first place I'd look at. Uh, the other places I'd look at, there's a great book um, called Untangling Emotions. Um, I can't remember the name of the author right off the top of my head. Uh, they do a great job of doing uh, taking biblically sound um, theological implications uh, about feelings. Um, they're guys uh, published by Crossway, so they're a trusted group. And then there's a book by um, Dallas Willard. Uh, and another man, uh, Jim Wilder, wrote a book called Renovated. Uh, those three resources would be spot on. So Jim, Jim Wilder uh, really sat at the bedside of Dallas Willard in his dying days. And uh, Dallas Willard said, this is the book I wish I had first written. Um, and you, you'll read that in the book. So those are the three primary places I, I'd start. Um, again, uh, that's what we do here at Tin Man. If people are looking to really discover who they are, uh, dive deeper into their story. Maybe there's something that resonated with them today that they've been running from. Um, we want to give people a place to run to. And so they, you can contact us on our website, tinman.life, and then they'll fill out a form and they'll get connected with one of our uh, coaches that way. They'll do an intake with me. And then my job is to listen to them and place it with our coaches. So those are the primary ways if they want to take extra steps. That's great. Thank you, guys. We really appreciate yeah, you being sure on do. our podcast today. We sure do. You've given us a lot to uh, ponder and uh, very helpful. We appreciate it much and pray God to continue to use you as you serve the body of Christ. Awesome. Thank you, men. Thank you, men. Thank you. So, Alan, some deep thoughts to uh, chew on from Jeff and Todd. Uh, what, what impacted you today? I think just being able uh, to learn first of all, to have people I can be honest with about what's going on in my heart, to not neglect that and to, and to see, and I grew up in that environment where feelings were discouraged. You know, you had maybe the, uh, the fact faith feeling train and feelings was supposed to bring up the caboose. But I, to understand that my, my feelings are legit and that God wants to use them to help me to connect with him and to connect with other people. Uh, they're not meant to be neglected. When I neglect them, it's at my own peril. Uh, that doesn't mean that they lead me, but you know, I so much appreciated the, you know, the analogies that Todd made, that they are keys and lanterns. Oh, and I just forgot the third one. <laughs> well, here we go. But they were good. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, and I'm thankful for that. They really do help me to trust God and to go deeper with other people. That's good. I would have helped you, but I couldn't, Alan, nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, listen a couple of times to this episode and allow the Spirit of God to do some deeper work in your life that uh, takes you out of isolation and into deeper and deeper relationship with other people and deeper and deeper relationship. It was passwords. Jesus. Passwords. passwords. Thank you. I was like, I got to sit here and think about it until I yes. get it. <laughs> passwords, lanterns. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. Yeah. And uh, next time on Equipping You Podcast, we'll have Ashley and Heather Holloman, and they're going to talk to us about what, Alan? Evangelism. Fantastic. So excited about that. They wrote a book called Scent, and they're engaging and very helpful. 
So your homework is to read the book sent between now and next time. When we look forward to welcoming you back to Equipping You Podcast, we like having you here. Meanwhile, keep the faith. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Equipping You Podcast. If you liked this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our channel. We hope you will join us for our next episode. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org.